This is a Federal News Network podcast. A new round of government-wide acquisition contracts, or GWACs, is coming from a couple of agencies, including the General Services Administration and the National Institutes of Health. For both contractors and federal agency customers, though, what might be the oldest GWAC continues to outshine them all, even if it is sometimes taken for granted. For a review of the numbers, federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And of course, Larry, you are writing about and we are talking about the multiple award schedule program, which just is the energizer bunny, the little engine that could name your metaphor decade after decade. Bridesmaid, unsung hero, Tom, whatever moniker you want to hang with it. But the fact is that GSA's multiple award schedule program remains the largest government-wide acquisition contract, both in terms of overall dollar volume and in the width of what you can buy from it if you're a government agency. So often in the world of GWAC contracts, we talk about information technology and professional services, and those are very important parts of what government buys, but the schedules program covers those areas and many, many more. And last year, we're estimating that the schedules program did somewhere over $35 billion. We're actually still waiting for some of the final numbers, but that's a substantial amount of business, and it doesn't begin to add the sales made by the VA's version of the multiple award schedule program for pharmaceuticals and medical supplies and even medical staffing. So when you add those numbers in, you're going to have a multiple award schedule or federal supply schedule program, depending on where you sit, that's going to well exceed $40 billion in business. And we also overlook sometimes the fact that many of the large acquisition programs that agencies do for themselves are blanket purchase agreements based on the schedule's contract. That's exactly right. Uh, The Army has a program that is based on GSA multiple award schedules program. Uh, The new Air Force 2GIT contract is based on GSA IT uh, schedule contracts. There are probably some other examples, but those are the easy ones to remember. And those programs are often counted by people in uh, industry, Tom, as separate programs because they have a separate program name, a separate identity, but the underlying contracts are GSA multiple award schedule contracts. And you couldn't have those programs with the ease that you have them uh, if they had been programs that the agency had started from scratch, which is one of the reasons why they've gone to GSA schedules is because it's easier to start a program that can be tailored to their needs by using the flexible underlying vehicle that is the schedule. And is the consolidation of the schedules program by the GSA, which was quite a major development and getting rid of all of the different sub-schedules and just having one multiple award program, that was designed to make it easier on contractors. Are they pretty much through that process now? Tom, they are most of the way through that process. And GSA has done a really very good job in terms of consolidating the schedules. It contained the elements that you just mentioned, but it also uh, put all of the contractors on more or less an even playing field in terms of contract language, updated a lot of obsolete clauses, hopefully, I hope, brought to the attention of contractors. Here are the standard terms and conditions that you're going to sell through and that you need to pay attention to to stay compliant. Uh, So it's not a mishmash of things done over time. It's a, you know, it's an easy to use, easy to understand compendium of contracts, whether you're a buyer or a user. Right now, GSA and industry are still merging contracts from a company that might have had three or four schedules into one. 
but that's going to become somewhat seamless to customers, Tom. Uh, overall, that was a big undertaking, and GSA did it really well. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president and CEO of Allen Federal Business Partners. And uh, I wanted to ask you also about the idea of free services, because that affects GSA schedule holders in some way. And it's come up lately because of volunteer groups that want to fix or repair or otherwise aid and abet the border wall that the United States has partially completed on the southern border. That's right. We're starting to get some discussion, Tom, about whether or not individual organizations could repair or complete the border wall along the U.S. southern border. And while there are certainly a lot of angles to that discussion, strictly speaking from a contract perspective, the answer is probably no. The federal government has some very limited circumstances under which it can accept free goods, and rebuilding a border wall is probably not one of them in this case. There are, of course, exceptions to the no free goods rule. Imminent danger, crisis would be one of them. That's one of the things that people are trying to claim now. We have a crisis, uh, imminent danger. I'm not really sure that it rises to that level. I'll leave that for others to decide, but probably not. A couple of the other exceptions are, are healthcare related, whether it's accepting help from the Red Cross or the Department of Defense accepting help, uh, free goods in uh, wartime, or a public health crisis where free goods or free services are needed to help the nation get by the public health crisis. Otherwise, there are very, very limited circumstances under which a contractor can provide free goods. That doesn't mean though, Tom, that the government doesn't wanna know that you provide free goods as a company as part of your commercial business. In fact, it can be a standard practice commercially to hand away free goods as an incentive or inducement for a customer to do business with you. And if you're a GSA, multiple award schedule contract holder, and you do give away free goods commercially, the government does want to know that you do that, even though they might not be able to take advantage of that free refrigerator or that free teaching class that uh, you give to show people how to use your fancy, sophisticated device. They do want to know that you give away free things because they will then try to negotiate on the schedule a deeper discount that reflects what they believe to be the value of that free good or service. But could the contractor alternatively just simply throw it in as part of the regular price? Well, a contractor could say, uh, you know, we're going to add an extra benefit to you, government customer. We are willing to put it in writing that we're not going to charge you for it. So if you have something in writing that's part of the contract that says we acknowledge we're providing this for free and we are not going to seek payment at a later date. That's another way to allow the government to accept free goods. Because the real concern is that a company or a person would provide goods for free and then come back and say, you know what, I really need to bill the government for my services. That's a claim. Uh, the government could have to pay that claim depending on uh, how the court cases or other things came out, and that could bust their budget. At its core, 
all of this prohibition on free goods, Tom, gets to the Federal Anti-Deficiency Act, which, believe it or not, goes all the way back to the late 19th century. And it's precisely that the government doesn't want to bust its budget, kind of ironic, but it doesn't want to bust its budget in this case by having companies provide something for free, only later to turn around and bill the government and then have the government not have money to pay for the things it thought it was going to have to spend on. Imagine if you would told a late 19th century Congress that a future Congress would consider spending $5 trillion in the first three months of a new presidential administration. I'm not sure they would have believed the words. I'm pretty sure you're right, Tom. I think that would be, uh, they would have had to look at that as as something like uh, traveling to the moon, but even a little more strange than that. You never know. Sometimes times change. Really, I think sometimes what only changes, Tom, are the people and the dollar figures. The decimal points change with each age right. on us. <laughs> Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. As always, thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, Since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way, Uh, great men, theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government over two million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we wanna do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social 
uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing, like never before, on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service, which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all, but is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. I've led, this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime and uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.